from the very earliest descriptions of uh, people with autism who do speak, uh, clinicians noticed, uh, including Leo Kammer, that they sound odd. They may speak in a monotone. They don't use their voice appropriately, so they may speak too loudly, and that feels somewhat intrusive socially, or they may speak too quietly, and therefore uh, the person they're speaking to may have trouble um, hearing and understanding what they're saying. They may speak in a very uh, rigid kind of sing-song voice, which also sounds odd. That's Helen Tager Flussberg, a professor at Boston University. Another way of putting the phenomenon she's describing is to say that many people with autism have difficulty with prosody, which is the basic rhythm, maybe even the melody, of spoken language. Prosody is something that is completely absent on the written page, other than it's expressed through punctuation marks. But that leaves out a great deal of what we put into the melody of language. So as I'm speaking to you, I'm pausing at particular points uh, in the sentence or at the end of sentences. The kind of sentence I'm presenting may vary depending on the function. So questions will usually end with a rising intonation and comments will end with a falling intonation. So the different types of utterances are marked. You're listening to Spectrum Stories, the podcast from Spectrum, the leading source for news and expert opinion on autism. I'm Jacob Brogan. In this episode, we're talking about the juncture of prosody, other social communication problems, and autism. We'll be hearing about some of the research in this area and learn why these challenges can make the lives of people with autism so difficult. Some of the latest science has come from Ruth Grossman's lab at Emerson College in Boston, Massachusetts. Grossman became interested in these issues in 2014 when she made short videos of typical adolescents and teens with autism speaking certain sentences. She then cut those clips up into segments that were just one second long, and she showed those clips to undergraduate students at the college. Here's how Grossman explains what happened next. I asked these participants to either listen to the clips or watch the clips and tell me, just answer one question, was the person you just saw or heard socially awkward? And what we found is that for every permutation of those brief clips, the children who had a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder were rated as significantly more awkward than the neurotypical kids, based on the exposure of one second. And it didn't matter whether that exposure was just the voice or just the face and body, right, just the video, or the combination of the two. Now, to be clear, not everyone with autism has difficulties with prosody specifically, but the majority appear to have trouble with social communication. Sometimes it's about those questions of tone and rhythm, but it's also about facial movements and expressions. Grossman's research seemed to show that however subtle these challenges may be, other people can tell. And they can tell really quickly. The discovery has driven much of Grossman's subsequent work. She's been trying to figure out what it is that we're seeing or, or hearing when we interact with someone on the spectrum and get the sense that something is off. And that's formed really the basis or the motivation for a lot of the work that I've been doing since then. And we've looked at both prosody, we've looked at verbal expressions, we've looked at facial expressions, really in an attempt to, as I like to say, 
I'm trying to quantify awkward, right? We have a very quick social perception of awkwardness um, that is very consistent, and we've now replicated it in a number of studies. As Grossman suggests, that work isn't just about examining the rhythms of spoken language. It also comes down to things such as computer-assisted analysis of facial movements, and other techniques too, all with the goal of, as she puts it, quantifying awkward. We have audio recordings, we have video recordings, um, we have eye gaze recordings, so we know what the participants in the studies were looking at when they were talking or listening. We also have some biophysiology measures, so we have electrodermal activity and heart rate variability, so we have some metric of um, neurophysiological arousal, uh, which can be interpreted as um, anxiety or stress in a social situation. And we have facial motion capture data. So we put 32 reflective markers on the faces of the kids, um, and we record where those markers move over time. And all of that is really in an attempt to get some objective measures of the vocal and facial expressions of adolescents with and without autism to help us understand where that perception of their social ability comes from. Jeremy Maher is an Emerson student who received an autism spectrum diagnosis in his teens. He's also done some work in Grossman's lab. I asked him if he'd had difficulties because others didn't understand what he was communicating. Uh, I can think of one example where uh, I was interviewing for a job. It was a new project on on racism and health. And um, so since it was new, much of the interview was just about this is what we're doing here. And the person who was interviewing me was hesitant on hiring me because she didn't think I was interested in what she was talking about at all uh, until she found out that I was diagnosed with Asperger's and that what I was showing wasn't disinterest. It was just, you know, the way I look. As Maher suggests, it's not that people on the spectrum aren't feeling things. It's just that their attempts to convey those feelings don't always come across the way they intend. Individuals with autism are not non-emotive. Right? They are expressive, and in, in some of my data, they're actually more expressive than the neurotypical kids are. So one problem may be that those emotional signals just aren't coming across clearly, even if the feelings are there. But some research also indicates that some people with autism are able to convey emotion very clearly. It just still doesn't feel right to the folks they're interacting with. That came up in one recent study that Noah Sasson of the University of Texas Dallas worked on. Sasson and his colleagues coached participants with and without autism in ways that let them feel particular emotional states. Then they had those participants say short phrases while in those emotional states. So you might have a clip of them saying, I can't believe it, with anger. But, but you'd also have them speaking the same phrase happily. I can't believe it. Or surprised. I can't believe it. And so on. According to Sasson, an acoustic analysis of the samples 
suggested that there were significant differences between the two groups. In our results of the acoustic analyses of the speech patterns, we found that the group with autism had a greater fundamental frequency, which means a greater variability in their pitch range across the emotions. They also were louder speakers than, than our typically developing controls. So, different, yes. But, and this is important, the emotions were still coming across. Here's how we know that. Once Sasson and his fellow researchers had those samples, they played them for a different group of participants. That second group was asked to evaluate what emotions they were hearing. What was very interesting to us is that when we then uh, have new participants come in and listen to those speech samples and try to identify the emotions in the speech, we actually found that the speech patterns of the adults with autism were recognized at a higher rate than the ones in controls, which might seem, you know, counterintuitive. But what we ended up determining is that the patterns of speech, of emotional speech in the adults with autism were kind of exaggerated forms of typical patterns. So they were quantitatively different uh, and not qualitatively different from the emotional prosody and controls, which means they were still recognizably conferring the intended emotion. Significantly, the listeners with autism were also able to pick up those unusual characteristics in the speakers with autism. You know, in our study, we find that the uh, listeners who have autism were just as adept at, at noticing differences they, in the speech patterns of individuals with autism, they were just as likely to uh, identify it as, as less natural, and they were more accurate at identifying the emotional uh, state and speech from individuals with autism than, than controls. Grossman has seen similar results in her own studies. And what we found is that the kids in the video who had autism spectrum disorder were rated more negatively by everybody, including by the participants with autism. So, and it's, and a couple of the questions, actually, the autistic participants rated the autistic adolescents in the video more harshly than the neurotypical kids rated them. So on the one hand, the good news part of the story is that the adolescents with autism have the ability to perceive these social signals, right? They're, they're getting the same signals that the neurotypical kids are, are perceiving and understanding and processing. But on the other hand, of course, this is not good news for being able to sit in a middle school lunchroom and have somebody look across the room at you and want to hang out with you. What that indicates to us is that adults with autism may, even before entering into a social interaction, be behind the eight ball, so to speak, that they may have fewer opportunities uh, for, for social experiences because of the, the judgments of other people. And that would lead them to having fewer opportunities to practice their social skills, for example. And then when there is social interaction, there are all of these kind of qualitative evaluative judgments that are affecting the social experience far beyond just the, the content uh, of the discussion. There's also a complicating factor here, though, which is that while people on the spectrum may be aware of unusual prosody in others, they don't always recognize it in themselves. 
That's what Maher told me when I asked him about his own experiences. It's always hard for me to tell because, I guess for me, like a lot of the symptoms that that often come are seen by other people, for me, are just normal. But um, I know, like, a lot of times people think I mean something else just because of the way my face looks. I guess my expressions don't always match my intent. Over the years, Marr says that he's learned to give off some prosodic and facial signals that might be considered more conventional, but it still takes him a lot of work and conscious thought. I took uh, two years of CBT, uh, so I was able to like learn about it, but it's, it's always a conscious thought, like, should I, should I speak louder here or, like, you know like, flash a smile here or something like that. It's never something that just comes natural to me. It's always something I think about. The effort that goes into keeping up appearances may be a burden, but it can be effective, at least up to a point. Still, there's an obvious concern here, which is that we risk asking people with autism to put in a huge amount of effort to accommodate typical standards. And they may not be able to meet those standards perfectly, even when they try. At this point, the research into prosody and other signals hasn't quite shown us a way out of that bind. As some of Sasson's research indicates, one way to decrease the stigma may be to simply make people more aware of others with autism. We do see in some of our research that people who have more knowledge or familiarity with autism do provide more favorable uh, evaluations uh, of people with autism. And so integrating and including uh, people with autism in the broader social world likely would be beneficial for for everybody. It would um, improve the kind of uh, viewpoints that non-autistic people have towards people with autism. And hopefully over time, that kind of integration and inclusion uh, would lead to, to better social experiences. Maher mostly agrees, but as he knows all too well, that approach presents challenges of its own. That's a little bit of a difficult question to answer because I think the right answer is to understand that people are on the spectrum and they're going to act this way. And uh, just have to understand that, like, they don't always mean what they say. They're usually not trying to be cruel or mean, even if they come off as that way. This has been an episode of Spectrum Stories, the podcast for Spectrum, the leading source for news and expert opinion on autism research. To read more on social communication challenges in autism, take a look at Where Communication Breaks Down for People with Autism by Lydia Denworth, available now on spectrumnews.org. Audio for this episode was edited by Daniel Schrader. I'm Jacob Brogan.